Welcome to the Beyond Mining podcast series. This podcast series was recorded from a number of talks, panel discussions and workshops held between the 22nd and 29th of November 2020 at the Beyond Mining Counter Conference. This counter conference was organised by Blockade iMark. Blockade iMark is made up of an alliance of organisations that has been protesting the International Mining and Resources Conference held annually in so-called Melbourne, Australia on unceded Wurundjeri and Boomerang country. You can find out more information about Blockade iMark and the Beyond Mining podcast series at blockadeimark.com. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy your podcast. The mining industry, the extractivist industry, was very, very powerful and very influential. It rewarded um, the new leadership class. For example, our current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, was rewarded by Anglo-American for his work um, in the transition to democracy, and he is a mining magnate in his own right. He stepped back while he's president, but he's become enormously wealthy through participation in, in, in mining um, and in a close alliance with, with uh, Monopoly Capital. Uh, Post-94, there, there has been a tension. The major tension in the mining industry has been between the state and the mining industry is the efforts on the part of the state um, and uh, that leadership to empower um, an indigenous black bourgeoisie and to promote them as competition um, against white monopoly capital. So we've seen a growth of um, a new bourgeoisie that is, is, is trying to shift and displace the older white bourgeoisie and uh, the state has been largely supportive of that. That was a sustainable project until about 2007 when we had the world economic crisis, um, which triggered um, um, uh, an era that's referred to here in South Africa as the state capture era. We saw a naked, um, thuggish, greedy elite emerging and taking power here aggressively and in a Way, taking control of state institutions and waging an open war against um, white monopoly capital um, in order to empower a new class of, of, of people. Um, that took place across all sectors. And what we saw is, a, is a, this state capture period under Jacob Zuma, we saw a period of major economic decline. So one of the impacts was um, the effect of destruction of the state electricity monopoly, which um, severely curtailed South Africa's capacity to process raw materials. Um, and uh, we're now at a stage where we're back to exporting ore, crude, unrefined materials that we ship out um, primarily to the east. Um, the um, the, the result of this kind of decline and collapse has also led to um, uh, a decline in the mining industry, uh, fragmentation of the industry. Um, 
and, and an exit from South Africa by very many large mining companies. Anglo-American is out of gold mining completely. It's climbing out of coal and is reestablishing a presence elsewhere in the world. Um, the, you, in an in a earlier conversation with you, we alluded to the effect of, 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 of this breakdown and fragmentation. And we do see it in the emergence of large numbers of small opportunistic mining companies, uh, politically connected mining companies that engage, that are granted mining license and permits, and um, also and, and act in a largely unregulated way, protected largely by political influence. And we also see a, an enormous rise in, in, in uh, completely unregulated mining illegal mining, it's referred to here in South Africa, but we see it in the coal mining sectors, chrome mining, and the gold mining sectors, which is increasingly characterized by criminal gangs, criminal consortia, mining illegally, using the police as, um, as, as their, as protection, corruption of the police forces, and in collaboration with local and regional politicians. So we see a kind of a, a collapse and a descent into anarchy and that regulation we had in the first 10 years um, is, is getting ever weaker. So what is the community response to this being? How has civil society responded to this? Well, <clears throat> there's been a lot of change and a lot of change for the good. Um, I think primarily communities, indigenous communities have, have, have recognized that mining isn't the panacea it was promised to be. I mean, when mining arrives in, a, in, a, in an indigenous community, uh, the promise is jobs, employment, wealth, business opportunities, education, a range of promises. Those promises have been repeatedly broken. And, um, and with the growth of activism and awareness around those issues, people are understanding and beginning to understand that, that, that these promises of, of of wealth and good fortune um, is, is, is not realizable. So there's been a tremendous growth in NGOs um, who are involved in informing, educating and empowering communities to stand up to resist, to understand better what the implications are of mining. Um, I think our role as, as lawyers has been not only to support and uh, foster that activism and awareness, but to help communities that to the extent they're confronted by mining, um, prospects of mining on their land, to assist them to negotiate fairer terms, um, more equal terms um, that will ensure that they are less disadvantaged by the mining than they might otherwise have been. Um, to push um, aggressively on the question of compensation. And here, we, uh, it's not just a question of um, of compensation for physical harm and economic loss, but we're working to try and quantify um, quantify the value of ways of living, lifestyles, cultures, um, social cohesion and integration, and trying to attach a value to, to, to what it means to lose that. Um, the point is not so much about compensation, but to ensure that mines know upfront and aware upfront of what the cost will be. If you're going to undertake mining and you're held accountable for not only the, 
immediate physical harm you do and the immediate economic harm, but can be held liable for what the impact of that mining is on the status of women, on the people and the ability of people to support themselves, on the destructions of their culture, um, you get a better sense of what mining is really about and a better sense, a better opportunity to weigh the, the, the costs and the benefits. Um, and then, of course, one of the most significant um, things that has emerged is that people um, are beginning to say no to mining. There are, there are indigenous communities um, in, in, in South Africa who have had the courage to stand up to the state, stand up to the mining corporations and say, we like our way of life. We wish to protect our way of life. We want to protect our culture and our values, and we don't want mining here. We're not interested in the equation of cost benefit. Um, we don't want it. We value our lives. We value our existence. It remains um, a very dangerous and difficult environment. Um, one of our clients was murdered two weeks ago um, in northern KwaZulu-Natal. She was one of a brave group of people who were resisting the resettlement of about 150 communities, families, uh, from 20,000 hectares of land by a, um, a South African coal mining company. Um, Bazuka Radebe was murdered. Um, there is a lot of violence against activists, threats, shots being fired, and people who resist um, are, are, are at significant risk. Um, there's often collaboration at a local level between um, the mining companies, uh, local traditional leaders who are corruptly uh, co-opted, um, and of course the police and the state. In, um, in, Northern, in KwaZulu-Natal, we have um, the Ngonyama Trust, which ostensibly is a trust belonging to the king, the Zulu king, who owns most of the land in KwaZulu-Natal and who trades readily with, with uh, the mining companies. In, in the case of Pittman, the Ngonyama Trust signed a lease agreement with um, the mining company. Um, and one of the terms of the lease was that they'd only need to start paying money, rental, for the land when everybody was removed from the land. So the king himself and local authorities are collaborating with the mining companies um, and have a financial incentive to collaborate with them to drive people off their land and encourage people to, um, to, to accommodate and, and, and compromise. Um, and I suppose in that there's a breath of hope. Um, there's, a, there's the opportunity that as awareness rises, as communities are empowered through organization and to the extent that we can by contributing to new and different legal strategies to empower them, um, I think we're slowly pushing back um, and, I'm, and I'm fairly optimistic that we've been through the worst and um, we're well placed to, 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 to resist um, um, the harm that is associated with this crude extractivism that we've seen to date. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Richard. Um, yeah, thank you for that. It's really great to hear this sort of context and, and also that you are coming from this, how do legal strategies work with, 
you know, the indigenous communities and the very frontline communities in dealing with extractivism. And I think there's definitely lessons to be learned from the work you're doing and in South Africa. Um, and hopefully we can talk to more of this. So one thing I'd like to say is we may or may not have time for Q&A, but do feel free to use the chat if there's any specific questions to, to um, any of the speakers. Um, it's there to be used, so, so please do. Um, now I'd like to move on to our second speaker. Um, we have Ron Guy, who's the convener for Victorian Australian Western Sahara Association. And he's gonna discuss the activism and campaigns that are you know, protecting the sovereignty of indigenous Western Saharas and their ongoing struggle for self-determination. So straight over to you, Ron, thank you. Yep, thank you. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, not a lot of people know about Western Sahara, so uh, probably just a little bit of a background on the, on the issue there. But uh, Spanish Western Sahara uh, was a, a colony of, of Spain. Um, in 1975, a little bit like uh, Timor-Leste, uh, that there was a uh, Spain um, ended up pulling, pulling out, but there was resistance before that against the Spanish being there. Um, Morocco invaded, Mauritania uh, also invaded at that particular time. They'd made a decision to make up half and half of each of the of uh, Western Sahara, and the uh, the the Mauritanians ended up changing their, their government after a couple of years because of the resistance of the West Saharans and uh, Morocco, uh, fought, they fought on with Morocco until 1991 and then there was a, a U, United Nations um, ceasefire. So it was a broken ceasefire on the guarantee that they would have a vote of self-determination so they could decide whether to... Uh, to become part of Morocco or to um, be the, the, have their own uh, country. Um, and interestingly enough, so uh, before 1975, um, Morocco tried to say that, uh, that Western Sahara uh, there was Terra Nellis. So they tried to say, that there was nobody living on there at that time. So it was actually belonged to Morocco. The, um, in the, the UN with the discussions about that, uh, Algeria, Mauritania and Morocco were allowed to, uh, to put their case forward to the, uh, to the United Nations, um, but the, the Western Saharans weren't. So, the, so they were left out of that. And the courts decided that there was completely uh, a different different culture, they were their own people, they were probably more related to the Mauritanians than Morocco, so that wasn't terra nullis, they, was actually, they were actually farming the land and, uh, and you know, claiming, you know, being part of that, that nation. So the Mabo case in Australia, the Mabo case uh, was used the reference of Western Sahara, the outcome of that, to achieve the, their own status so it's sort of ironic that the West Saharans still haven't had their vote of self-determination. Um, now, the resources that the, the Spain started up, uh, uh, they found uh, phosphate on there. So that's the resource part um, that was being shipped off all over, over the place for agriculture. Um, and uh, uh, the Moroccan king was making a stack of money, um, well, 
when it was divided up first off, Morocco took over uh, half of it and Spain pulled out. Uh, and then they took over the whole lot. So the resources are being stripped from the from the population without them benefiting. Now, um, the period of 1975 when they were invaded, uh, half, half the population got stranded in uh, in the occupied zone that uh, that was being fought over, and the other the other uh, part of the population had to escape through the desert uh, with their essence of, uh, with the uh, the fact that they'd end up returning so they're set up in refugee camps and because they were being uh, uh, the, the, the uh, women and children were being bombed they ended up uh, Algeria said well you can come across into Algeria and they found some they drilled about four four uh, uh, water holes so that they had water at those particular places so that was uh, uh, so that's where there's the refugees have been sitting there uh, in tents waiting for their for their vote of uh, self determination for the UN to get their to get their act together. Um, now, the the uh, activism part that that uh, that we got involved in or I got involved with was the the phosphate that was being stolen was being spread. Uh, on the farmlands in Australia, is Western Australia and the Eastern District by two companies, uh, West Farmers and um, Incitec Pivot. And uh, so we used our lobbying. Um, it was easy to buy shares so that you could go along and bring attention to it. So um, in about 2006, when we started the uh, AGM campaign, um, West Farmers, even though they, they said, no, there's nothing to see here, nobody knew about it, but because uh, uh, at the AGM, there's a lot of people that, of course, don't know about the issue of where their uh, procurement, so in all uh, uh, procurements become a big thing of where you're actually procuring your, uh, your materials from. Um, and uh, companies like to think that they're sustainable and ethical, so, uh, bringing attention to this issue, to start off, the company was in denial, and when you and then they put it in their annual report that there's nothing to see here, we've done nothing wrong, and then um, as a, as a few years went past and we were more active and getting more um, more press on the issue, um, and the the Australian Christian Super Fund um, wrote to the West Farmers. So the superannuation super funds started to take take notice of it, um, and that put a little bit. Of, they put further pressure on the on the company. That's and West Farmers owned at that they owned Bunnings and uh, and Coles at that stage. They'd uh, brought so it was an easier place to to target, and it wasn't the the fertilizer industry wasn't the main part of their. Their, their monies it was a, a bit of uh, you know, their income, but it was embarrassing for them to be doing the right thing because all their reports are saying they are sustainable, they're ethic, ethical, uh, we look after the community. So eventually they, uh, so, that, so they haven't imported, I think for about uh, since 2012, they improved their equipment so that they weren't uh, reliant on phosphate coming from from Western Sahara, so stolen phosphate. 
Instatech pivot um, in Australia was a bit, uh, in Victoria was a little bit different because it was a, at that stage, it was 100% of their, uh, their the business to supply phosphate. Uh, so at the AGMs, we weren't very welcome there to start with, but then after a period of time, uh, people start to know you, they start to know about the issue. So it's, you know, so everybody is a complicit um, in it. And in the last three years, they've stopped importing. So they haven't imported, they haven't said they're not going to never import, but they haven't bought phosphate. And part of the is because of the attention that's come upon them because no farmer wants to uh, to uh, have blood on their hands from the uh, the, the the rights of uh, an indigenous population. It's um, it makes it a little bit harsher. Now, uh, West Sahara Resource Watch uh, is an international um, group of uh, activists that have done an incredible job of following the ships around. Um, another key point that happened was that uh, the one of the ships, which was on its way, we thought it was coming to Australia to Intertech pivot, so that's three years ago, but it ended up going to New Zealand and it got arrested. Uh, the ship, you can arrest a ship in um, in Elizabeth in um, in South Africa, and uh, South Africa uh, took it, you know, took the Polisario case on. It went to because the Afri African Union recognised Western Sahara, and so they went to. Uh, they went to the court and the South African court ruled that this material was West Saharans. It wasn't the, the Moroccan, so it, it was illegal. It was an illegal ship of, of 55,000 tonne of phosphate. So uh, that was an successful outcome in that court case. Um, since then, ironically, New Zealand is the only one that's been importing now. So because of that arrest, other country, countries, so uh, Canada and America, they've stopped importing from, from uh, Western Sahara. So there's only, I think, uh, well, New Zealand is the last one that's, uh, that's actually using the phosphate. Um, unfortunately, and the New Zealand uh, comrades uh, over the last, uh, I think this is probably their last uh, 18 months or so they've been uh, causing uh, demonstrating down there and um, and taking the uh, New Zealand um, uh, companies with cooperatives they are so that you can't actually uh, you can't actually vote at their AGMs because you have to be a farmer uh, the old style cooperative so it sort of limits the actions that can happen so it's down to picketing the the, the front gates but um, some there's some pro bono work being done there by lawyers that are taking uh, their superannuation fund to court because of unethical you know, that it's not meeting its un its ethical charter. So that uh, I think in December there's a ruling there should be a ruling coming out. So we're hoping that it's in in our favour. But either way, it does put uh, it does put the New Zealand um, uh, phosphate companies on uh, uh, fertiliser companies on notice. Uh, there, and I guess as a that's probably part of our activism that we hope to achieve is maybe those products that are being produced by the by New Zealand that are coming from the phosphate from Western Sahara, um, maybe we can we can pinpoint those and then uh, do some activism around that. Now, 
the pressure that's been built on uh, on Morocco because of their resource theft, which also adds to fishes, fish, the fish stocks off the coast that have been were being um, stolen and taken into uh, Spain uh, by shipping. Um, uh, the, the EU has uh, uh, twice it's come to the EU's attention, and both times um, the West Saharans have won on that resource matter. We just won though, uh, because the, the the fish stocks are so valuable uh, that the, the Spanish um, are probably the uh, the nasty pasties in this case. But the EU agreement has has sort of has locked that that uh, that resource down. Now, unfortunately, what has just happened on the 13th of November, I think, it was the 13th. Um, because the, the transport lane that was going down, the UN has got peacekeepers there. And part of the Minerso uh, peacekeeping is to keep the two warring parties apart until a vote of self-determination has been held. Um, but uh, what had been happening is Western Sahara resources had been taken down the coast through the uh, UN was should have been blocking this resource off, the, the resources from being moved. And that was going down through Mauritania and further down into Africa. So uh, there was a peaceful assembly that happened to stop the, the trucks uh, from going through. Morocco sent down its military um, to, uh, to, to uh, open the road back up. The Polisario reacted because this is against the, uh, the UN uh, 9-1 ceasefire arrangement and uh, there's been shots fired further up. So there's been a, uh, the Polisario have uh, attacked a couple of the uh, military sites further up the, the berm wall uh, that's 1,700 kilometres long that uh, keeps uh, the coast in control by uh, Morocco and, uh, and the, the Polisario's liberated zone. So unfortunately, that's what's just uh, just uh, been happening today. But I guess to back to the resources, the work that was done at the uh, AGMs, bringing attention to these issues, it's uh, it, it's long term, but it is uh, it is uh, effective about the human rights issues. Now there is a, I think I'm, I'm not sure whether I'm getting wound up here, but uh, because. <laughs> Because there is so much to talk about uh, with um, oil off the coast and gas and all the rest of those resources that need to be exploited. So uh, I'll leave it there. Thanks, Ron. I, I really hate Russian people. And also particularly with Western Sahara, because <clears throat> I know that a lot of people don't really know much about it here. So I mean, I'm really grateful. I did put your website in the Thank in you. the links, then there's some questions for you. So if more time at the end that we can bring you back in. And I'm sure other people will be really interested to engage more. I mean, what's really good about what you're presenting is you're here and you're actively doing things in solidarity to support, um, you know, this movement in, in Western Sahara. So thanks so much to you and everyone else working on it. Um, we're now going to move into Melanesia, which, you know, interestingly, we'll be moving to Papua New Guinea first. And as someone who's worked in Papua New Guinea for over a decade, particularly on extractive issues, 
it saddens me that most Australians just have no knowledge. And I think, you know, I can really empathise with Ron on the sort of struggle in trying to get these issues up and get, um, you know, even us as a movement and as activists really aware of what's going on. Um, before I go to Duncan and Vernon um, from Papua New Guinea, um, I'm just going to show a three minute video of um, uh, one of their they're really amazing um, friends and colleagues that they they work with, um, Emmanuel Penny. Emmanuel Penny uh, founded um, Project CPIC and in this short video he talks to the importance of the river um, and he talks to why they're fighting against what could be one of the largest mines in the world. So I will just start that now. For us growing up along the river and people belonging to the river, the river is its a spirit that is living. So we have languages and we've got songs and stories that says, you know, it could wake up and it talks to you and it sleeps, it dreams, those kind of stories that, that my mom tells me. And all its life forms, both plants and animals, are connected to us. And that's really important. That's really important. It's, it's my identity. And that's going to be killed. That means Emino representing you, interest for you, interest for life for me. Before Lord White Money come, this is place, and my place for walking law. I received four death threats. I could be taken out or members of my volunteers could be harmed. And that's, that's really um, something that has hit me. But I think it's Sipic River is important. And my livelihood and the livelihood of people I love and my country is important. What is the true development? What am I over? My ground, my heart, my river. Now you like him money, you like him one kai kai ken. Now you meet talk yes lo money, you be kill him life long to na blum black and bien. Emba mla pai don slawara na bem la dialogue slawara bem da so. Bem la pai. Oh, we can't hear you. I keep muting myself, thank you. Um, I'd really like to invite uh, Duncan, Gabby and, and Vernon Gowie here. I'm just going to spotlight their video. Um, I am greatly privileged and honored to be working with these two amazing young men, as well as the Project Secret team who have been inspiring me daily. And I feel quite emotional talking about it um, for the last year and a half to two years. And um, this is the first time we're actually on Zoom together. So it's also even more emotional. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. But I'm going to just throw over to you, Vernon, um, just to follow on from that short video. And whether you can just talk to, before we kind of go to a broader context of, of sort of uh, extractivism in Melanesia, Vernon, can you talk to what the work Project Secrets are doing and also the importance of, in that video, they talk to, you talk to the, the house tambourine. Are you able to um, just give the, everyone, uh, A, you know, a bit about Papua New Guinea, where the secret region is, and um, then just that work you've been doing on the ground that's been, been so amazing. Thank you, Ned. So um, Project CIPIC is a, is a non-government organization, just like most of you guys as well. So it started in um, 2016 until it gained momentum in 2018. So what Project CIPIC has been doing is, um, is campaigning against the Prida River mine, which is a mine a first was run by the um, extractor. Yeah, extracted and then from the Canadian government, but um, recently the Chinese uh, took over and the company in which they are working behind is the panels. And uh, this mine is projected to be the second largest mine in the whole world uh, with the second biggest um, reserves. So, when the EIS was released by the Frida River mine, there were many flaws in the in the EIS, uh, the environmental impact statement that is. So there were scientists who came and they did um, they did some studies on the river and um, as well as the seismic uh, region as well, and they found that if if the if the mining were to build a, a dam it was bound to break and all these, um, all these chemicals, all these cyanide uh, being used by the mine will wash out into the Sipic River. Now Sipic River is a very important river to the people who, who live along uh, the river. That is from all the way from the West Sipic side of Papua New Guinea, all the way down to East Sipic side and it, it's 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 been their livelihoods, and uh, the people draw the affinity with the river. They 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 get the fish, the food from the river. They even drink the river as well. So the river is a source uh, of many things for the people of Sipik. And so if this mine were to uh, begin operating, it will. like all extractive industries, there will be. Um, there will be negative impacts to the environment as well. So what Project CIPIC has been doing is um, we have been campaigning as much as possible. We want to educate the people what's happening at the higher level from the governments down to the mining or whatever that is. We, we go and we inform them, we do awareness along the river and then we go to the views as well and we take that and then we put it down on media platforms. Uh, we send it to our partners, AidWords, uh, Jubilee Australia, all these people and they push it out onto the international uh, stage as well so that everybody, everyone has to know what is going on in CPIC. And um, we, we are happy that um, the United Nations as well have uh, kind of written through 10 special repertoires um, regarding the mining and 
they've written quite strong letters to the governments of Canada, uh, Australia, China, and to the um, Islands Freedom River Limited and Penost, as well as the, the government of Papua New Guinea as well. So uh, me and Duncan are here. We, we just finished uh, from our second semesters from the university. We are both university students like uh, others who have come and gone before us. So we are here to continue the awareness, continue the campaign and continue to uh, be the voice for the vo voiceless who, who live along the Sipic River because most of these people are illiterate. The, the, there's really low uh, literacy rates in this part of the country because it's, it's quite remote as well. Uh, most of these people who live there, they are cut off from much basic government services or whatnot, but their whole life revolves around the Sipic River. And so we seek to protect that. I, for, for myself, I am from the Sipic River as well. So my dad is from that part. And I, when, I, when I do this, it, it comes from my heart and it's not like, you know, it's just like, um, you know, if I, if I don't do something now, what will happen to the future generations, the ones who will come after me? Will, will they be able to enjoy uh, what I have enjoyed? Will, will they be able to, you know, see the beauty of the Sipic River and live and experience it? And so this fight, is uh, from the bottom of my heart and I'm very happy as well to have uh, uh, many, many other people from all over the world, like all of you, um, who we are like-minded, we stand for the same thing to protect the environment and and protect our people as well. Thank you. Uh, uh, yes, a, that, there's that, a question that, there to talk to the house yeah. timbre and someone's actually yes. asked, how, how many people living along the CPIC seduced by the promise of money? So I'm wondering if you can talk to actually what's happened in terms of the stance by the people who live along the CPIC River. Okay. Uh, the freedom mine is not uh, actually on the CPIC River. Mm -hmm. It's from the Prieta River, one of the tributaries of the river that flows and joins the main CPIC River and then flows down. So the people up there, they are different from the ones down living along the Sipic River. They are the ones who want the mine. And yes, they might have been seduced by the companies, the company, Penos, because when Penos went up there, he started building a post and giving them, you know, the stuff that they want, they never seen. Just basic stuff that, like health services, they have provided health services out there. And I promise them more if they allow the mine to operate. So the people like they are likely to push for the mine. Because uh, for them, they want to uh, face the impacts of the mine directly. Because everything, all the impacts of the mine will be faced by the people living downstream. And the people li uh, living downstream don't really want that mine. They are not the... Uh, Landowners. The landowners are the ones living upstream from where the mine will be. And the ones down there will be the ones who will be affected badly from the mine. So those are the ones along the river that are fighting hard to stop the mine 
from going forward. And uh, once up stream where the mine is located, yes, they want the mine. Mm -hmm. They have been seduced. We could say they have been seduced. Mm -hmm. Okay, yes. um, I'll, I'll, I'll run through the house number and the, uh, the Sugundumi, Supreme Sugundumi Declaration. So mm -hmm. what is the Supreme Sugundumi Declaration? It's, um, it's a declaration, a statement uh, made by clan leaders of selected Austomberans in 25 villages um, along more than 1,000 kilometers of the Sipic River in Papua New Guinea. So what, what uh, the essence of the Supreme Sukunumi Declaration is, it captures the, the Melanesian governance that existed before the colonial times. So back then we had chieftainship uh, type of governance where the chief was the, the owner of the land, the, the, the river and everything that uh, consisted. So what we've done is we've got the views and you know all of, absolutely all of these uh, chieftains from more than 1000 kilometers beginning from the top of the Sipic River down to the end of it near the sea so what they've done is they've, they've put together a document. I mean, they've signed a document declaring, you know, the Supreme Sukundumi is a coalition of chiefs um, on uh, House Tambarans. House Tambarans are like, um, in, in our language, it's like the house of assembly or a government house where, you know, everything takes place where the young men go to get initiated, to, to get taught about how to live their life and how to go hunting and all of these things. And it is where all the elders of the villages will sit down to um, pass decisions on how to govern the village where, where orders are given to warriors to go and fight battles and all of these things. So we had this governance way before any um, a Western influence came in. So that is, is there. So. What we've seen is the government of Papua New Guinea are actually for the mining, you know, based on the, the economic recession that is going on due to the, uh, the COVID and, uh, you know, all these things, the economy is slumping down and the government is very unstable at the moment. And it's really, it's really hard to, you know, convince them to, you know, stop this mining because in the end, the government is there to get money. So, you know, based on the projected um, uh, billion amount of um, gold this, this mining would provide for the country, they, it's, it's very unlikely for, for them, for the government of Papua New Guinea to stand with the people of Sipik and say, you know, we, we, we heard your voices. Uh, you guys don't want this mining to go ahead, but it, it, it's not like that. So what we've done is we, we've approached the, the chieftainship who are actually the rightful uh, owners of the land and they've passed down this uh, declaration. So this declaration is admissible in courts as well because the chieftainships are also the ones who, elect, who, who choose the LLG president or the one who represent the local level government uh, on the ground. So by that, it, it is given a substance to Supreme Sugundumi Declaration to give it that power, you know, to to say that no, you know, our voice. We have been here before the government of the day, so uh, when we pass down this declaration, 
it's it's the final say in this now. Even the government of the day has no right because they don't own the land. It's still customarily owned. Like much of Papua New Guinea land, it's still customarily owned by the people who've been there for thousands and thousands of years, um, way before uh, any any Western colonials uh, touched down in the country. So uh, basically, that's what it is. I think, um, Natalie, if you could, if you have a copy of the document, if you could I've, share. Yeah, that. I've been posting links in the, the chat. So I've posted the declaration, the, the, the Supreme Superintendent Declaration, a background document that talks to you know, it just goes into more detail about the significance of these, your traditional governance, and also the joint letter from the 10 UN Special Rapporteurs, which is a really significant and historic thing to have happened. I, I yes. wanted to throw a question to you. I mean, that it's, it's so great to hear of what's going on, you know, currently, and I, I know that you all take great risks in what you're doing, and your, your frontline defenders is absolutely, and, you know, you heard from Manu saying he's had death threats, and... Um, yes. Uh, Duncan, I just wanted to throw to you in a more broader context, and I know that, you know, you talk to this a lot, you have a blog, I think I might put that up, and this sort of idea of kind of decolonizing, but what Melanesian, Melanesian governance means to you in terms of protection of your land, your waters, your mountains, your rivers, Are you, can you just sort of talk to that for our audience, because I think um, it's really, it's kind of important in this context of extractivism. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I think uh, PNG. PNG is quite unique because uh, almost 90% uh, of the land is uh, owned by the traditional landowners. Uh, government, the government only owns 3% uh, of the land. So the, the resource, uh, the landowners, the locals, the natives, they have 100% uh, user rights over the land. So that's uh, something. That's uh, something for us. You don't see that uh, uh, in most places around the world. So coming back to uh, Melanesian governance, uh, coming sorry, coming to uh, Melanesian governance, uh, the people. Our people in the past and current and in the present, we don't see ourselves as, a, as the owners of the land. Yes. The land to us, we see ourselves as a custodians of the land. We don't own the land. The land is owned by the ancestral spirits. I'll just give, a, give an example like in some parts of the provinces in Papua New Guinea, the ancestral spirit might be a snake. The snake is the landowner. The snake owns, the spirit owns the land. And we are just custodians there to live on that land, benefit from it, and also to protect it. So, when it comes to a governance system, uh, the Austambaran can be seen as uh, our system of governance where all the decisions are made in the Austambaran. So that's where the Sukundimi declarations come from to protect mm -hmm. the land and all the yeah. resources. So yeah. In the 
Melanesian context of uh, resource governance, we'd see that uh, people only took what they needed from the land, not more than that. And there are certain, that, that the, before conservation was, the term conservation was introduced to us, we were already practicing conservation and preservation of uh, resources. So, so when we come to uh, Melanesian resource governance uh, that in with uh, conservation, there are certain areas, I'll give a right example here. In, in, my, in my village, there might be a certain area where it is restricted or a taboo area where people don't go hunting there because astral spirits live there. So we don't go hunting there because we might uh, anger the spirits. So that is that area is not ventured into or touched so the forest, everything is untouched. And that's where species of flora and fauna flourish without any disturbance from the from human, uh, human activities. So that's that's something mm -hmm. for us. But uh, over the years, with religion, of course, coming in and telling, telling us that uh, those ancestral spirits are work of the devil. So we must not uh, fear the devil. So. And then we started venturing into those uh, restricted areas, those taboo areas, the places where our ancestors and our forefathers respected and didn't uh, go in. Mm. You know? So we went in and started taking everything out. We sent logging companies in. We sent mining in. So there have been stories around the ground. If you come to Papua New Guinea, you'll hear more. That logging companies, when they go in, their machines, machines, machineries, all that, all that break down. And then they call the traditional landowners to come and speak to the spirits in the bush. And then the machine starts again, and they start cutting down all the trees. Mm. So, Mm. So Melanesian uh, governance, uh, resource governance for sustainability has been effective in the past hundreds of years before colonization, of course. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Duncan, so, I'll have to um, probably, I don't want to have to close you because I feel like, I just feel like we're all face to face, these discussions can roll on, but it's it's really important to hear what you're saying. and. You know, I'm really grateful for you and, and Vernon to come on. I know access is really hard in PNG, so I'm really grateful the internet was stable. Um, but please, everyone, go to savethesecret.org if you want to see more. Um, if you want to learn more, I'm really involved with, with working with Vernon and Duncan and, and Project Secret teams. So, um, so thank you. And now we're going to move on just across from there to West Papua, although uh, Pora Bibi is in Nam in Melbourne. But um, I really want to welcome Pora Bibi. Uh, he's a West Papuan human rights activist, uh, deeply rooted uh, connection, understanding of indigenous ways of knowing, being and doing, which, you know, we've just heard from Duncan and Vernon. Um, and, and he's also, you know, last year was really much involved with the blockade IMARC 2019. So it's so great to have you on. I know it's very last minute pulling you into the session today. Um, but yeah, I just want to throw it over to you to talk about the the context in West Papua, thanks. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much and good to see our Wantok brother from across <laughs> the land who stand up and fighting for the land. And yes, um, same as everyone before, uh, I would like to share a video from Freeport, you know, the famous Freeport who causing 
so much you know militarism and genocide to the local Amume indigenous in West Papua, which is very close, you know, the same uh, mountain plate with the uh, Okiteri mine. With, so yeah, um, um, I would like to share this, uh, my desktop with everyone so we can watch it together. So, um, yes. Can everyone hear it? Yeah. Saya Yusuf Alomang, saya Amui. Dan memang kami yang Timika itu yang punya asli saya. Saya pun juga tidak merasakan anak juga. Saya rasa dulu, saya punya anak-anak. Kerak-laki satu, perempuan empat, tapi sudah mati habis. Negara Republik Indonesia bunuh saya orang Amui. Seperti ini. Yang tanah timika militer milik ini bukan dibeli. Ditodong dengan senjata barang mereka. Ini di alat negara Republik Indonesia punya militer yang kami dipakai untuk senjata bunuh habis. Freeport kasih keluar uang untuk kasih militer. Berbadi saya, saya pikir Freeport dari awal sampai sekarang ini musuh dengan yang punya negeri itu saya yang banyak kerja untuk tanah hamungsa dan mangkawi itu seluruh dunia ini sudah diamankan dengan report punya uang tapi pribadi saya belum diamankan tujuh tujuh itu Uh, saya pikir militer masuk di Kuamki baru uh, apa airport Timika uh, airport Timika itu militer turun dengan pesawat nikudir besar saya bilang bapak ini orang orang apa yang masuk ini begini bapak saya bilang bapak adik Paulus Makal dia bilang Bapak, eh, anak, nanti besok lusa tentara ini yang makan kita, bunuh kita. Kenapa jadi bunuh kita? Ya? Begini mengamankan Timika, jadi datang. gitu. Itu yang saya lihat. Tujuh-tujuh yang masuk tentara itu. Dan tentara itu bukan untuk mengamankan Freeport itu, bukan mengamankan Freeport seperti apa ya. Mengamankan untuk kita masyarakat. Masuk di dalam militer, baju hijau, semua itu masuk dengan di rumah. Angkat orang kelak-laki di rumah. Yeah, um, thank you so much everyone for watching. That's just a bit of like a minute or two of the movie called um, uh, Word from the Mountain from our mama in uh, uh, Nemankawi, the indigenous elders of uh, 
the Glassbeck Gold Mine, which is, you know, the only uh, snowy mountain I think in Pacific that ever exists. So the indigenous um, community they call it the the Saljo body, the eternal snow. And yeah, um, before I go forward, I want to pay respect to the Wurundjeri elders and Bonwurrung elders of this Nation people, which I amplify the West Papuan struggle. And yeah, I am Poro. And in here, our biggest questions of us is like, uh, yeah, from before the meeting, we, we know that, yeah, how can we make Australia accountable? Or like, why Australian don't know about the involvement? And in here, interestingly, uh, me and a couple of friends from um, Kent, uh, we we found out this, um, uh, I'll start to share screen again. Um, this, yeah, Transitioning Regional Economies of Cairns, which is written in February, 2017. And interestingly, in this um, report, you know, made by Cairns Regional Councils and Advanced Cairns by Cummings Economic, and if you see that, you control F and you see Freeport. They mention about Freeport right here on page um, 2029. Uh, it says, apart from major coastal shipping out of Cairns to supply WEPA operations from 1974, Freeport has had a buying base in Cairns and small self-loading container ship, about 100 containers, on a regular scheduled run, typically during period on day 10, 10 day cycle, and to transfer cargo derived from Australian centers concentrated in Cairns to its port of Amamapai in West Papua, uh, at the peak order of 300 million a year. And it started since 1974, 1974, they start renting a base in Cairns and since then, yeah, you can you can do you can do the math. Three hundred million a year since nineteen seventy four to Ken's regional area. Um, yeah, and in here, you can see there's interesting map right here, um, which is mining related and other relevant aid services interstate and overseas that uh, I can relate with my brothers in um, Papua New Guinea and Okiteri, uh, Okiteri mines or any other mines in Papua New Guinea and also um, Bougainville, we never forget Bougainville mines that creates a lot of killings and genocide to Bougainvilleans. And yeah, um, I wanna go further. I wanna make, I wanna zoom it, um, stop sharing, but yes. Uh, yeah, um, again, sharing again. Uh, you can see here, like from Cairns, it can go straight away to Amalpari Freeport, and then Okiteri Mine, and any other, um, you know, uh, area in Papua, and I would love to talk about the militarism because of in Papua we 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 call it we call it as a as an in Indonesian archipelago in West Papua we 
we call it as a kebun para capitalist means like the the farms of the capitalists in west papua because it doesn't matter the south the west the north the east it all built by so many foreign um investment for example mife for the national projects in morocco of they're planning to do to plan um palm oil the biggest palm oil uh industries in the whole uh, indonesian archipelago and also uh there is freeport and then there is bp uh british petroleum uh one of the biggest uh lng plants in the world in asia pacific which is based the reservoir based in um uh area called uh uh Tangu, Bintuni Regency near Sorong, and also there is Petrogas, there is Petrochina, there is more and more and more and more out there that um, what they're doing is actually again extractivism, and also the way to protect this uh, million dollars investment is to to bring the the bishops which is a military which is in in this case uh the indonesian military the tni and polri um so if you if you write down like on google or on your research if you see uh timika massacre or grassbeck massacre what they're exposing is just the killings of um the foreign workers who work there which is uh, not the truth that experienced by uh, among my community, like uh, Auntie that have spoken before on the documentary movie, which all of them undergone so many, so many military brutality. And in here, um, I would love to share you the, the the presence of military and the location of the military base in West Papua, which is connecting um, all of this a uh, big foreign investment like industry companies in West Papua, which is, uh, it's gonna be on the next uh, map right here. Uh, yes, this one is, um, you can see on the map, it's it's called a TNA Polrai uh, Forces in West Papua, uh, made by Australian scholar. So, and it's released on 2006. So I haven't been updated yet. Um, so Polri means uh, the federal police, like Indonesian National Police, and TNI means the Indonesian National Soldier. Um, you can see it like on, on the military bases here. In here, there is uh, Freeport McMoran, and around this area there is BP. And down here, Merauke, on the southern coast to Annam Land, is uh is Morocco, which one of the biggest uh oil palm projects that they're gonna build for Indonesia and also the biggest rice field that they're gonna build for Indonesia. And this is just the police and this is the military. And yes, if we combine both map together and then if we think of uh, the latest massacres after massacres happened since uh, I don't have knowledge before 2000 year 2000 but from 2000 onwards until now 2020 
the Keelings is just all around this area of the where where the where the companies are, where the BPs are, where the teamikers are, where the Mifes are. And me and a couple of friends in Sydney, we trying to build a big map that actually incorporating the whole massacres and the Indonesian um, corridor map to fasten the growth and economic development, which is released by 2011. And we come to this, um, oh, this is, the, the, uh, I forget to mention about this. So this is one of the, um, a report released by the Indonesian Minister of Economy. It's called a uh, uh, Papua Kepulauan Maluku Economic Corridor of a Few. And you can see here, here in this report, this is the point that they're gonna build this massive project. If you heard on West Papua massacre last year in uh, one of the uh, trans road project, there was a killings of um, Indonesian road constructions and there is a killings of West Papua in there, which some of the road, road construction is actually military that have been assigned to do work and then to 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 to, see, to search any West Papua in there who organize a protest or rally around the area. And in here you can see the elements that are actually helping to boost the economy in Indonesia is first, they call it food agric agriculture, MIFE. Um, but most of the investors here are from Korea, from, from Australia, from uh, any other capitalist countries who involved. And then if, if you have a time later on, you can watch the Mahuse. Which, which is mean the Sego, which is the indigenous Meraki community fighting to protect the Sego. Um, same, as, uh, same as our brothers in Sepik. So they have a river there who, who's gone, who's gone. Like they, you, cannot, you cannot find any um, like bread of paradise. You cannot go hunting for couscous anymore. You can, cannot go fishing. You can't even drink the water uh, from the river itself. So the main elements that they're looking forward to, to extract in West Papua land, in Maluku land is the food uh, and the copper. There's copper here, which is true. All these you know, mining com companies, which is Freeport. And there are so many uh, mining companies that I can't, I, 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 need, I need to do research. Um, there's Nico. And all and guests, definitely. Fishery and tourism. So with the whole extractivism, I feel like West Papua is the land of extractivism by all these foreign companies, like from every side of West Papua. And to summarize all, I we come up to this. Uh, map right here. Yeah, here. Sorry. Yes. You can see um, with the with the economic to economic 
growth and development project by the Indonesia, which they're gonna build the whole road construction, which they're gonna you know, give more jobs and employees, more community, more indigenous community. It's all just for the benefit of Jakarta, which is the central government, which is in Jaffa, Indonesia. So you can see here, um, the symbols by the, the skull is where the massacres are. So one in Wasio, in, in Timika, Duga, the latest um, bombing and military operations that happening since 2018 that have been you know, killing more than 200 uh, West Papuan indigenous. Um, yeah, in here you can see they, they, for me, what I see from this militarizations in West Papua is they're trying to clean, clear the land so they can progress the project of the road infrastructure or building more mining um, companies or building more tourism. This is what they sell to the other world. And if you go to the profile of the companies like Freeport, BP, Petrogas, uh, PetroChina, there's none of, you, you cannot see uh, West Papuan faces to, to have an agreement, for example, to extend a contract with Freeport, extend a contract with BP for the um, expansion project, LNG expansion project. It's very rarely you see a West Papuan who you know, actually make a deal with this, all these um, companies, while those who make this agreement for, to extend the project and contract, et cetera, are actually the, the elitists, you know, the conglomerates, you know, the, the elitists in, in, in Indonesian bureaucracy, which is in, in Jaffa. Um, yes, so military presence here symbolized by the gun. So like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and more. And once after, after the, the road construction project finished here near the border, um, I heard from a local friends and activists in West Papua that they're gonna build uh, military bases, more military bases, which is it's very hard for West Papuan people to seeking asylum to Papua New Guinea, to fled from, you know, they let fled from their land. Um, yeah, uh, what next? Ooh, so they're still undergoing uh, major road construction in West Papua, connecting from Sorong which were the area which reach of oil and gas where BP Asia Pacifics are from here. And then you go to Manakwari. So this major road construction is still in progress, which, you know, it's, it will connect the whole um, big industries in West Papua. And yes, this is, this is a poster made by um, our friends in, in, in West Papua by Tapol, which means the political prisoner and also uh, Juby, um, which is a local um, a West Papuan trusted West Papuan magazine. So in here it says that Kematian Sipil diantara penduduk asli Papua selama operasi militer Nduga di Indonesia, meaning the, the civilians dead, the civilians dead during the military operation in Indonesia, which is 243 victims since 4 December 2018 to 2 February 2020. 
which is the location is here. Or very close, very, 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 very close, very close to the road, major road construction and very close to Freeport itself. Um, yeah, uh, I think, yeah, I'll, I don't know. We might have to might have to close you off there, even though you know really we could have a whole session on West Papua and it's so important. Hey, thank you. Um, but yeah, thanks so much, Poro. Uh, it's really interesting, you know, when we think about extractivism, that actually all those infrastructures are also this form of extractivism. Um, and you know, I think there's a lot of people here who are interested in West Papua, and, and of course, Poro is in Nam, so please do reach out to him, and you know, we should be building a stronger movement. Um, really in solidarity. So our last speaker, certainly not our least speaker, is an amazing uh, Wiradjuri activist and artist, Tim Buchanan, who has really been on the ground and grassroots and I have been following his, his uh, activism for quite a while and, and been really like just super inspired and impressed. Um, so Tim, I, I'm going to just sort of, you're the last speaker and I guess as a First Nations person, you'll be speaking to um, the context here. Um, I know we talked earlier that, you know, in this, in this panel, we've had some discussions around kind of legal strategies um, and you're someone that's in the grassroots. Do you, do you see tensions between these strategies? Um, and and if, if so, do you see ways of working together or do you see this as a, a really important discussion to have in terms of our broader, broader campaigning? So I'll leave it to you, Tim, thanks. Hey, thanks everyone. I'd um, just like to start paying my respects to uh, Wurundjeri and, and Bunurong peoples here and countries here and elders past, present, future and emerging and um, centre that that I'm on I'm on their country. Um, I'm Tim Buchanan. I'm a Wiradjuri community organiser. I was raised up um, on Birupai country in and around Tari. Um, and as I said, I spent the last decade sort of ex fighting extractivism um, living in Malumabimba, Newcastle, which is the world's biggest coal port. It's where the most coal, thermal coal flows um, on the face of the planet. Um, and that sort of goes up, that coal chain goes up um, through Awabakal, Waramai country, um, also into Darkenjung, uh, Wanarua and Wiradjuri country, as well as Gnori country. Um, it's really interesting hearing all this and like, I just want to bring it back to like extractivism and capitalism and how it's, it's, it sort of seats itself as, as normal and, and ahistoric and it, and it seeks to try and pretend that there's no history um, behind capitalism. And, and it's this sort of normal process. Extractivism is extractivism is a normal process, but it's, it's basically built on, on dispossession and, and theft of land and, and genocide of peoples. That's, that's the story here on this continent. Um, it's, and, it's, and it goes along with a long program of forced assimilation and normalization of, of these oppressive systems. It seeks to say that this is normal, like military installations in, in West Papua and, and killing of civilians is, is, is just normal and, and it seeks to, to do that. Um, I, I really wanna, there was a write-up for this thing where, where, um, where it said that um, these industries are short-sighted, but for me, it's not so much. I, I think that um, it's not so much short-sighted, but it's based on these special interests of, of industrialists who throughout the world sort of rely on these sacrifice zones and sacrifice peoples um, to take the full, full cost of that external cost of their abusive systems. Um, just want to center that this is the system working properly for those people. These people aren't short, so that the industrialists aren't short-sighted. This is actually 
what they want and they pick vulnerable people and people that they think are, are really disempowered and they, they seek to expand in, in those places probably the most. Um, just just want to quickly, what's happening on this continent, um, that everything is, is, is happening, unfortunately. We're, coal, um, offshore oil is, is coming up um, quite a lot. Um, gas, lithium, uranium, um, these are all long-running fights here. Um, what's really interesting about this continent and history, particularly around like you know the rise of neoliberalism, is that we, in terms of Western Western countries in that category, we are incredibly undiversified as an economy, and, and most other um, Western nations look at our economy and and see its lack of diversification um, as 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 strange and and an anomaly within the global stage. Um, that's because we, we rip a lot of stuff out of the ground and, and we displace a lot of people and and cultures. The story here is important, but we've only got a limited amount of time today. What I really wanted to get into is yes, this tension, and is it even a tension between like legal frameworks and legislative sort of um, ways of, of stopping mines and protecting communities, and then standing up in terms of like grassroots action. Um, and, and I would like to hear from some of the panelists if, if possible, but when I hear stuff from like Poro and Vernon and Duncan, I really realize that people here on this continent, um, especially, you know, settlers, um, non-Indigenous people have to really step up and maybe we here have to use what privileges we do have to really come at the weak points and the pillars that exist on this continent when we talk about Freeport and we talk about like Freeport and the Cairns link there and we talk about militarisation um, that our government supports. I think we really here on this continent need to be stepping up and doing the work that we can do here to undermine the pillars that are destructing, like that are destroying um, other cultures quite close to us. You know, uh, West Papua, PNG, Papua New Guinea are our, our closest neighbours, and we don't realise that. We have this story that is quite different. And and as Nat said earlier, this is not in our mainstream media and it's absurd because it, it is happening it's ongoing and, and it's, it's supremely brutal so yeah i just want to open it up to um the panel in terms of what they think can be effective when it when it comes to like legal um pathways forward for change but then when we look at legislative boundaries when can it not be um that effective maybe in the context here i, I come with some suspicion because we have a framework of like um, terra, like, you know, Australia's built on terra nullius that, you know, our people weren't here. And then we come to land rights and that was um, squashed by the mining lobby um, in 1992, 1993. And then we have native title and na native title is stripped of all teeth. It does not allow First Nations communities to say no. Um, it, it is really a toothless legislative mechanism um, that is sim mostly symbolic in nature um, and and that's the way it's it's sort of used, and we don't feel that we have a lot of like uh, legitimate ways on the table to to enact change. What do people think about that? I would love to hear uh, um, from everyone, but also like Poro and Vernon um, and Duncan as well. Um, I'm just going to shoot it open. I was wondering actually if we could throw to Richard first, because I know there was a question actually a little bit on this, so we we can kind of tie that in. And thanks so much, Tim, for throwing it back to the panel as we are short on time for Q and A. So yeah, I guess just sort of, if you wanted to respond first, Richard, in terms of 
um, maybe that tension or you know whether where it can really work and, and you've probably got some really clear examples on that and how it's worked in South Africa. Well, you know, because I'm a lawyer, the focus is legal, but let me give an indication of kind of our legal strategies. Um, um, the first is, 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 is to strengthen indigenous communities' control over their own land and their own destiny. Um, recently, we've had significant success um, in achieving the right of indigenous communities to say no to mining. In other words, an absolute block. If we don't want mining, we have the constitutional right now to say no, we don't want it. Um, but that means that to make that argument has required us to rework in a legal sense, a better understanding of the way that indigenous communities make democratic decisions about their own land. So what we've had to do is go back behind the, the kind of the, um, the way in which indigenous law and custom was uh, codified post-colonialism, go back to the original democratic systems and reassert them and, and claim these as rights. Uh, they're part of our law. And to the extent that indigenous communities had the right to control their own destiny and their own land, to reassert those rights and build them again. The second aspect that we that um, we 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 focus on is um, is to try and change the equation between mining and non-mining. The decision about the actual decision about whether to mine or not. Most of the mining activities that we've been talking about this this afternoon um, are unthinkable in Europe, uh, and the reason they are unthinkable because the social costs and the personal costs to people are just so high, it's simply not viable to do this. So we're focusing on trying to quantify and measure more accurately the impact. So one of the, the big things is kind of the impact on, on women of, of, mm. of the lot. And here, typically, we give women, you know, we say you lose a hectare of land and we value that land at X amount and there you are, there's, there's your compensation. But the truth is that 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 their land is a source of dignity, it's the source of their self-esteem, it's the source of, it's how they contribute to their families, to their communities, to their lives. So when you take away their land, you're not only taking away an economic resource, you're taking away their status as women, you're undermining their status, you're destroying it. And in fact, we know from studies what the consequences are of mining uh, to the extent that it displaces women from their land, how it leads to women abuse, uh, sexual violence, the degradation of women, drugs, uh, a whole range of social problems. So we're trying to quantify those better. Also looking at questions of sustainability, as, as, as all of our panelists appreciate, mining is a very short-term goal and what's left after, um, you know, doesn't provide a foundation for sustainability. So we're looking at alternatives to, to mining, and there are many, um, you know, mining, and, and, and if we research and understand these things, we can make the economic argument that mining is a really uh, bad short-term idea. The third feature of our kind of legal interventions and approach is that in the absence of appropriate regulations and norms um, in, in the statute books, we're looking at international norms and standards and international best practices, 
trying to bring them over here and have them recognized as part of our law. I mean, it's ironic that at the moment our struggle is to bring um, the International Finance Corporation's mm -hmm. guidelines displacement and have them adopted in South Africa because although this is a subsidiary of the World Bank, those standards are so much higher than our own standards. And we're now trying to say, well, if the state isn't willing to regulate and put in place, let's look at international best principles. Let's look at the equator principles and the IFC guidelines, bring them here and through the legal system, require them to be recognized as, as part of our own law. And that way we also shift the equation, increase the cost of mining and, and, and really bring to life, I suppose, the, the appreciation that while mining conceptually could be advantageous in the overwhelming number of circumstances, its net consequence is the impoverishment and degradation of peoples. Those are, I think those are the points I'd like to make. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Richard. Um, I just want to jump in. I, yeah, Tim, I'll start back it, to you. I um, remembered something that I wanted to raise that um, that we have a system here on, on this continent where um, where mass like mining polluters are destroying the environment, but then they're also investing in companies and in part own them that then um, get the contract to come back in afterwards and clean it up. And this is where we see this sort of disaster crisis capitalism sort of model where they're, they're profiting off the destruction of the environment. And there is, a, there is an incentive to, you know, not really limit that because they also make money con, contractually cleaning it up afterwards. And, and that's really insidious. Um, that just something that Richard just said sort of um, triggered that memory. And I think that's important to, to center as well. Could I? Oh, yeah, Ron, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> go, Ron. Yep. Uh, look, Tim, just a, he's a, a very obscure thought, but uh, uh, which I'm very good at. Um, now, West, West Papua, they're going back to the UN and they're putting a fight up because uh, that, for, uh, that they haven't had a proper vote of self determination. Uh, Western Sahara uh, has never had a vote of self-determination. There's and there's about um, there's four countries on the uh, uh, on the on the list. Uh, I think there's four countries that need to have their vote of self-determination under the UN. Um, in essence, the indigenous have never ceded their power, their ownership of the land. So maybe you need to go to the UN to be registered for a vote of self-determination. So maybe, maybe that's, that's uh, what needs to be done. And then, of course, the resources falls back into, into uh, Indigenous hands. But you, you've never had a vote. You, you're, you're a colony and you've never had a vote of self-determination. That's all. <laughs> good. Oh, yeah, go for yeah, it. Yeah, it's just like a simple thing for me. Um, uh, uh, in regard to Tim um, questions before. Uh, so now in Pacific, we know that there is Pacific Island Forum or like mm -hmm. any other legal bodies that uh, has been acknowledged by the UN themselves. So like for me, they have this big group talking about economic interests and how can we share our coordinating between each other and help each other to boost our economy. So like, why can't we have such a coalition coalitions 
of the oppressed community of of the oppressed indigenous um despite of un like yeah these legal bodies that that you know embodied every collective oppressed um indigenous in pacific for example let's talk about like small you know pacific and then there is melanesian polynesian micronations and also um australian indigenous as well yeah i feel like if we have these legal bodies that can have a communication with the PIF as well. So we can say like, oh, it's a big no-no to apply mining in this place. And then we have a vote from these other Pacific countries that you know experience and undergone the same. Like the story of Bougainville, you don't want to repeat again. It's Sepik Rifo. The story of um, Okiteri, you don't want to repeat again in, in for example, in, in Anamland, or the story of um, Uncle Kev's story in Central Desert with the uranium mines, you cannot repeat again in any other Pacific region. So, like this is the same narrative that happens to all these different indigenous community in Pacific and Australia. So, we need to have that, you know, legal bodies. Um, yeah, that's it for me. <laughs> Thank nice. you. Thanks, Poro. And you know, there is a movement across the Pacific, um, which, and it's definitely a movement, and it is about reclaiming, you know, Pacific ways, Melanesian ways, Polynesian ways, Micronesian ways. Um, and, you know, I work on the issue of deep sea mining, which is going to be massive if it goes ahead so far, like we've been able to hold it off. And there's really great um, frontline activism uh, from, you know, Indigenous communities right across the Pacific that are opposing that. I would love for this to continue. There have been questions, um, but I'm really mindful that there'll be a session on in about 15 minutes. Um, so I wondered, is Absara still here? Are you still here? I think she might have gone. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, you're here. Hi, Absara. So just to close, um, I just wanted to acknowledge, and thank you, Tim, so much. I wish we'd had more time. I know you'll be speaking through the week. Um, and Friday is a really great sort of all day session for First Nations and what's going on here in so-called Australia. But I want to throw it to Apsara because I've absolutely so loved this panel, but I want to acknowledge that it's been very male. <laughs> um, although thank you, Richard, you did talk to, you know, that, that, that real experiences, the people that really suffer are, are often women. And this whole ideo ideology of extraction is about our bodies being extracted as well. So um, yeah, Sarah, I want to throw to you because I know you've got some sessions coming up and I think it'd be great if you just want to talk to them quickly and we can close. And then I think the next session um, will be a networking get to, just everyone getting to know each other for this is the first day of the conference. So it's going to be goodbye for me and thank you for everyone. Um, it's really exciting to have this conference this week. Over to you, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I, I've just been here also listening to um, all the uh, speakers and I know Poro personally as well. So, and um, having grown up in Zambia, in Zambia and Zimbabwe, Richard is just, um, it, it was across the, is across the border from where I grew up as well. And, you know, it's this forum, uh, I mean, this counter conference has been quite specifically uh, organized in such a way that we can hear the voices of people who are on the ground, you know, uh, either First Nations peoples or land defenders, as well as, you know, experts like Richard, yourself, and, um, and also activists. And I think this is what um, the forum, the, uh, this kind of conference this whole week will be really about. And tomorrow I am um, organizing 
and Poro is also going to be on that um, uh, on that uh, panel. Is uh, speakers from Mongolia, um, Kashmir, um, West Papua, and um, Eritrea talking about what extractivism looks like around the globe, and uh, to get an understanding that these companies that we talk about are repeat offenders. They're not. Um, uh, they're not only offending in one part of the world. Like for example, when we are fighting against Adani in here, in uh, which is uh, trying to open up Carmichael Mine, we also have to be cognizant of the fact that Adani is well and truly um, doing a lot of work uh, and very destructive work in places like uh, Mongolia. And also, you know, when, uh, for example, the Indian governments, uh, the, uh, the billionaires who are behind the Indian government's uh, expansion, uh, expansionism into Kashmir is because of um, the mining magnates who would like to have access to the minerals in Kashmir. So recognizing um, that is very important so that we ensure that when we're fighting for these things, we don't just fight um, like just in the part, part of the world we are, but really, build up this global solidarity. Um, you know, uh, just this week, um, we had uh, a, a massive uh, protest here in Australia because the Indian bank has just, um, is looking to give money to Adani to, uh, to continue the projects with Carmichael uh, mine. What we, the, what I was a bit disappointed about was that the whole discussion around here was the fact that now the uh, Adani had this money to continue this project. But I think we could have also looked at it from another angle is that if Adani gets this money to actually go ahead, we're talking about the fact that that's sucking billions of dollars out of the Indian economy during an extreme, India is going through an extreme recession right now. And what does that mean for Indian people as well? So I think, you know, if we actually have this global solidarity, we'd be able to connect dots a lot better and see the, how interlinked everything is. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information on the Beyond Mining podcast series, Blockade iMark, and much, much more, please visit blockadeimark.com. Thanks for listening.